Red Salute. Welcome back to the Manifesting Podcast. Just a quick rundown of what we're going to be talking about this week. Now, if you've been listening the last couple of weeks, you were probably aware that I had my interview with Jay Mufuad Paul this morning. Obviously, that's what we will have on the show this week. I thought it went pretty well. Um, just a couple notes. We did this thing over Skype, and for those of you that have used Skype at all, or Skype at all, you know that it can be an absolute rat bastard sometimes. Unfortunately, that was the case. Uh, during the first about seven or eight minutes, we had some connection issues. Um, really where JMP is talking about the strike that he's participating in. Some of the audio dropped here and there. It still completely makes sense. It's just like a word or two here or there. So I didn't want to have to make him re-record this entire thing. Plus, I landed a joke, so I am petty enough to to always put cheap laughs above the integrity of the show. So um, I had a really good time talking with him. You know, super great insights from him, as per usual. He's a really funny guy, really, uh, really nice. So I, I thought the conversation went well. We covered a lot of topics. Uh, that is one thing. You know, when you're talking to somebody like JMP, there's like a thousand questions you might have for him. That's kind of the, the place I was in. So we bounce around a little bit. We talk about his books. Again, we talk about the strike he's participating in. We talk a little Gramsci, a little PPW. So we're all over the place. I hope it's cohesive enough to have some flow. Um, but yeah, so obviously we'll be, we'll be posting that interview. After that, Lauren will be back with another piece about abortion and kind of the failures of white liberalism. So you have that to look forward to as well. As always, questions, concerns, comments, and death threats can be sent to me on Twitter at ManifestPod. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram as well. Just look for Manifesting Podcast. And if you want to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash ManifestPod. So without further ado, here's my interview with Jay Mufuad Paul. All right, I'd like to welcome Jay Mufuad Paul to the show. JMP works as casualized contract faculty at York University, where he received his PhD in philosophy. He's the author of some of my favorite books, including The Communist Necessity, Continuity and Rupture, and Austerity Apparatus. He's co-authoring a new book that comes out this fall entitled Methods Devour Themselves, and I also highly recommend checking out his blog, MLM Mayhem, as well. JMP, thanks so much for taking time to join the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right, so to kick things off, I just wanted to discuss the strike you're currently participating in. You're on week 10 now, if I'm not mistaken, so can you give us just a little background about why you're striking, the recent red baiting you've been dealing with, and maybe discuss how life on the picket lines have been treating you? <laughs> There's a lot there. Yeah. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, really, this is the third strike I've, I've been on in this local um, over the many years that I've, I've, I've been at York University, and... Uh, we tend to go on strike quite a bit because we have a for the core of our union is, is pretty militant the ones that are active and, and know that like kind of the, the militant work of striking and bargaining collectively gets us like a better contract and better job security and all these things but but this round of, of the strike is a bit different because it is uh it's a defensive strike against concessions mm-hmm. so the employer has been just gutting our contracts of a number of things and so really all we're demanding mainly like our red line issues are cost of living um, keeping what's in our contract a lot that has to do around job security and also some health and safety things like uh, some some good like resources for sexual assault survivors and, and things like that as well and and the university is actually the employer has um this round they are just not bargaining with us so we've been out for 10 weeks because they have actually spent more money trying to break the strike than actually beating them them would have spent <laughs> to to meet our demands right. so it's a very and, and they've entered into this i think this really trying to break the union 
union because this union is known to be one of the most militant ones in the sector. So they're doing their, you know, they've been red baiting. They released kind of statements about how the union is run by crazy militants. I mean, I was mentioned as well, even though I'm not in any <laughs> union authority position. Right. The time. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, it's, it's all that, this kind of rhetoric. And so, yeah, I mean, life on the picket lines has just pretty much become my life where I spend, you know, four hours a day uh, walking the line and just, you know, falling into that kind of thing of trying to keep the university shut down. Um, it is an interesting political situation, right? I mean, it's these strikes are moments of class struggle. They're not moments of, of a class struggle that is, is revolutionary, like, as I would say, would be underneath kind of a, a communist project controlling mm-hmm. like a party, but it's that trade union consciousness. It's, it's people become aware that they are employees and that there is vast contradiction between the employer and them and they, and they see themselves as workers um it kind of allows for this potential for them to start thinking about other politics but often at the end of the day it's limited by what why what i tend to call economistic boundaries right um i mean if we get what we want we'll go back on and maybe some people will keep a consciousness to demand for something more but a lot of people just go back to the same old same old um but still it's this moment to to agitate and talk about like other politics too which has been interesting and in this experience yeah absolutely and i think just um i think it's important that you touched on that because as revolutionary communists it can be frustrating sometimes dealing with trade union consciousness economism but um i think like how you said it's a it's a moment of class struggle and it's important to engage with that type of work even as a revolutionary communist yeah and i mean it's also times you can see that in a lot of these unions um there are people that don't even have what would be what lenin would consider traditional trade union consciousness because of the way business unionism functions. So mm-hmm. there's like people in my union who just have a terrible understanding and, and call everyone else that is just doing what has traditionally been trade union consciousness work, like call them like crazy militants when right. really what they're, they're doing what unions have been doing since they were created. And there's these people that will never walk the line, just want to end the strike even though it's concessions, spend all their time on union listservs, like filling it with the most poisonous and anti-union bile think that like basically uh talking about punishing scabs is evil <laughs> all this kind of stuff so so there's the people that don't even reach the trade union consciousness that are like circling around these things as well right it just kind of speaks to like what a sad state of affairs that uh, modern unions have become in some ways i think so um for those yeah who... definitely oh, but yeah. as i said the I was going to say, but as I said, the one that I'm involved with has at least this core and this history of trying to bring back that militant union spirit. Of course, it still is limited, as I said, by the economism. Absolutely. So for those of us listening that that may not follow your blog or your Twitter account, there's been some tomfoolery involving this group called Fight Back and their actions within the strike, including maybe one of my favorite quotes ever complaining about the problem of anarchist Stalinists. (laughs) Can you give us a few few details about that situation? And obviously the burning question here, um, have you abandoned Maoism for the cheap thrills of anarcho-Stalinism? I can say no to the last thing, anarcho-Stalinism. Um, I just, I think that's just some weird thing that these Trotskyites made up. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. But uh, unless Maoism is in their mind, anarcho-Stalinism, I mean, they can say anything. But uh, I mean, I don't want to talk too much about fight back because they've kind of become a joke on the picket lines now amongst everyone. Like nobody likes them. Right. Um, they, I mean, they're a, they're a, they're a Trotskyist known as the international marxist tendency they shouldn't be confused i know the u.s has the frso fight back that's different than this this group this is a trotskyist group um and they've always been 
kind of a problematic group. They, you know, they don't like it doing anything militant. They, they tend to think any kind of like direct action is, you know, puts the, the working class at risk. And their main practice is entering the major social democratic party, the NDP here in Canada, and trying to take it over from the inside. Um, but, you know, they they're kind of they have that same kind of like cultish sectarian attitude that groups like the Spartacus League have. Um, and this became very clear in the strike because they 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 got involved in a way that was very self-serving and just about branding themselves. And in, in one situation, in an action that was connected to the strike, this o- occupation, they um, they ended up a former member of Fight Back complained about having been sexually assaulted in their ranks and they started screaming at her in front of all these people like accusing right. a survivor of slander and just like treating her in this really vile way so the union got wind of it and our union which history of being militant for uh, around um like around women's rights and trans rights and all this kind of stuff there's like members from the trans feminist action caucus which is a connection that had were there when that happened and so this got back to the union and the union voted to like ban fight back as a political entity from all of our lines and union spaces right. <laughs> and then of course this led to them writing something denouncing the entire union claiming it had been t- it was run by because i guess you know they're that was just the way they everything's stalinist right for them and of so course. they invented this kind of new new, new story and, and you know for them everything goes back to the in stalin so they had to give it this, this this small union thing where they were kicked out they had to give it this like this world historical situation so i mean that's kind of the the story about them and you know we we kind of now joke on the picket lines about how we're all anarcho-stalinists uh, but <laughs> i love really that it's caught just on. <laughs> a non- nonsense term yeah i, I couldn't believe yeah, it when i, I mean, read that he's calling themselves anarcho-stalinists it's hilarious yeah <laughs> so just moving away from the strike i want to discuss your first book the communist necessity Now, this is a book that I recommend often to people who are either new to leftist ideology or have questions about getting into communism. I know for myself, at least, when I was originally looking for contemporary communist authors, I was being recommended stuff from like Zizek, Badu, Jody Dean, etc. And while I feel there are things we can learn from these authors, I wasn't seeing much really in a a clear way forward. We had Jody Dean proposing this far-off communist horizon, which you explored in the book. You had Zizek calling for inaction altogether. So was your goal in writing The Communist Necessity to provide some clarity in this otherwise muddy field? I I think, yeah, The Communist Necessity, I wrote mainly to kind of think through a problem of, of what I called movementism. It wasn't, I didn't invent that word, but a lot of us were using it. And this idea of how to organize it in the face of capitalism that had become prevalent. And that was this whole kind of, you get a whole bunch of small movements, you don't want a party, that's bad. You get a whole bunch of small movements that will somehow coalesce into a large movement that will overthrow capitalism. So it's, you know, it's kind of what I experienced going to the FTAA summit in Quebec City when I was a lot younger and with my affinity group and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and, you know, I was getting tired of this stale way that, that movementism kind of functioned and controlled the way that we thought of practice. And most of the book was an attempt to think through what that was and why it didn't work and why we should overthrow it and why we should have a new return to the the notion of, of, of the Communist Party. And so, yes, a lot of the, the thinkers that I was dealing with, too, weren't like just old movementist thinkers, but what I felt was a kind of this range where these important thinkers, like you mentioned Jody Dean, you mentioned Zizek, we could add like Alain Bidou to that, who were mm-hmm. actually starting to use the word communism again. 
which I thought was good because for a lot of us, we weren't using it in the centers of capitalism. We'd use socialism or other words uh, or just generally anti-capitalism because communism was a dirty word, but it was being reclaimed, which I thought was important, but it wasn't being the, the notion of, of, of the need to make communism immediately. The, the fact that communism is a necessity and that like we understand this necessity through the concept of a party, this wasn't being discussed in these books. In fact, the books kind of revolted against that. Although, uh, as I pointed out in the, the previous iteration of this question, um, I, I might have been unfair to Jody Dean when I first mm -hmm. wrote this because um, it, it, the communist uh, horizon read like that in many ways, and, and, and the readers and the people I knew who were really into it definitely used it as a way to just uh, attach communism to their movementism. Right. Very clearly, that's how they engaged with it. Um, death of the author and all that. So, <laughs> uh, but uh, but then when I read Crowds and Party, it seemed like Dean definitely was like wanting to put the question to the party back on the table. Now I think she puts it back on the table in a way that still has this semi-movementism to it. Like she she thinks it's almost like the movements will like spontaneously create the party. Um, at least that's how I'm reading and how I know other people read it as well. And you know she doesn't want to make a distinction between uh, the Vanguard Party and the Mass Party. I think these are important questions and when we're talking about a revolutionary party we should be looking at. So it still has that, but you know she still seemed to have been doing some important things with the discussion of the you know popularizing the concept of the communist party which is important but so yeah i was engaging with those thinkers but again i was engaging with the need that we need to understand that communism is a necessity because at this juncture we are kind of like running out of time to right to get rid of capitalism which is destroying the world and this movementist way of doing things is kind of anything goes we'll all just work together and we'll all be a whole bunch of raindrops that will cause a flood <laughs> that will you know drown capitalism uh it's not even it's like it's a it's like a i, I would say I want to say it's a bad strategy, but it's not even a strategy. It's more right. like this kind of pre-strategy. I think maybe often it assumes uh, insurrectionism, that it's just going to create this magical insurrection. I, it definitely books that I critiqued, like the coming insurrection by the Invisible Committee, definitely mm -hmm. are saying that, right? right? It's like this normative insurrectionism. But even then, it's almost like, ooh, the, the insurrection is not even the insurrection of the party of 1917. It's, it's a magical insurrection <laughs> by Invisible Committees, right? right. So, you know, it's, uh, I, I feel that needed to be really taken to task. You've discussed your second book, Continuity and Rupture, at length recently on both the On Mass podcast and Rev Left Radio, which if you're listening to this and you haven't checked out those interviews yet, I would absolutely suggest doing so. But I wanted to ask you a question or two about your third book, Austerity Apparatus. Now, I feel like this is really an important book for leftists, especially at the imperialist centers, to read. In the foreword to the book, you kind of explore this idea of the, the three regulative functions of the capitalist state of affairs. Can you discuss these three functions and how capitalism uses the threat of fascism as a worst-case scenario, with a welfare state being kind of our potential best-case scenario, to effectively keep neoliberalism chugging along? Yeah, well, I kind of like talk about kind of, and this again, it's, it's it's just a creative way to think about it. I'm not putting, I mean, I do philosophy, right? I'm not putting forward a different scientific way of doing this. I mean, maybe someone who starts doing like rugged state theory again, um, like I have a friend who's going back to do like whose work is in that might find these these kind of categories useful. But it's more just thinking about the way this, the capitalist state, or I refer to it to think about it as a, a state of affairs, right? Right. Um, can has has different faces, right? So I talk about one being like a state of social peace, and that's kind of the what we what we call social democracy, which is you know the 
the way you have the kind of a, a detente between labor and capital. And then you have, I call state of, the, at the other extreme, I say state of emergency, which we would call fascism, right, where where the ruling class becomes monolithic and you have this, you know, the capitalism is ruled in the most authoritarian, non-democratic manner. Um, and then you have, and of course it, it's, it's a state of emergency because it does that when, when you know, there's there's movements that are challenging it or the, the problems of, of neoliberalism aren't working, which I said the median one I call state of anxiety, what we call like kind of neoliberalism, where it's kind of like leaning or teetering in both ways. Um, and and I, and I think it's because of it. I call it the state of anxiety for a number of reasons. I think there's been a lot of research that shows kind of neoliberal capitalism has produced very anxious subjects. Absolutely. And, and, and produces this anxiety. And, and there's a whole work on that. And I think um, Jonathan Crary's 24-7 is a great book about that. I actually read it after I finished Austerity Apparatus. And I wished I'd read it at the same time because it would have been good to refer to. Sure. He was saying a lot of similar things, but with good empirical data, which I didn't have. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then... Um, it's I, one of the things with austerity is like uh, this this kind of austerity apparatus or that kind of the discourse of austerity. It, it produces this desire amongst subjects to 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 yearn for the capitalism state of social peace um, out of fear of the, of the state of emergency, which is always on the threshold of capitalism. Like fascism is always there, and it's it's that kind of teetering position under neoliberalism where this this idea is like, well, if only if only we could get back to that state of social peace, right? If only we get back to that social democracy, right. because we're so scared of the fascism. But instead of thinking that maybe these things are on a continuum, right? They're not they're not different uh, realities. They're all part of the same continuum of capitalism. They're different. There are different parts of this capitalist state of affairs, the right. whole capitalist state of affairs. So there are the three faces of it, right? And, if, and I think one of the things that's been so notable about this age of austerity discourse is just to bind people into thinking that that, that end of history discourse, that this is all we can get. So it's like this desire, let's have the kinder capitalism. Um because you know fascism is such a danger and and that kind of thing but usually it's a, that it's that yearning that happens in that that anxious moment that neoliberalism is so good at producing with all its crises and such absolutely so with austerity measures kind of mudding the waters and imposing this false sense of of what can be gained realistically where we as leftists should pick our battles etc and this really may only be semi-related, but I wanted to talk about uh, several topics here. So um, what can we learn from Gramsci and this concept of cultural hegemony in 2018? Because I feel like that war of culture is paramount when we're discussing something like protracted people's war, especially in the centers of capitalism. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, definitely I'd say the, the question of culture is paramount. But if you're asking about Gramsci, I mean, there's... I mean, people use that term for Gramsci. It's just hegemony. Sure. Right? I mean, hegemony concerns cultural elements, non-cultural elements, the whole gamut, right? The whole mm -hmm. gamut of of power, right? Of, of of figuring out class power. That's what he was talking about. Um, now, if you're talking about the cultural aspect of hegemony in in specific, uh, that would, or in particular, I mean, um, so that would be his stuff about like war of position and things right. like that. Um, and yeah, I mean, if you're if you're talking about gaining class power or like class hegemony, then culture does become a very. It's not just a super added product. It's a very kind of essential product, uh, even if it's you know the superstructure or whatever. Because you know, because propaganda proceeds the way people are you know ideas and class ideas are propagated. Like everything is propaganda is through these all these cultural avenues. Um, so I mean, look, the bourgeoisie 
maintain such a strong command over the way we see the world because they control every cultural apparatus. Um, I mean, there's there's holes in it. They allow other ideas to get out, but the ownership is still predominantly a bourgeois ownership, especially the ones that have you know the most money, like Hollywood or something like that. Even the most critical Hollywood movies still produce some view of the world from a certain faction of the bourgeoisie or petty bourgeois, right? Absolutely. And so this this cultural hegemony is so strong in in making people see the world according to bourgeois terms. So, I mean, part of any movement is to produce its own cultural apparatus in order as part of its bid for hegemony. And I, I think that's really important is producing work, producing art that comes from, like, a movement, not like cheap, shitty activist art <laughs> right but stuff that actually can like draw people in and want them to see the world in a different kind of way and um if you look at every revolutionary movement they every revolutionary movement has had these uh, like really important artistic apparatuses that have tried to combat the the ruling class ideas like sure. like the russian revolution you have like mayakovsky and all these people mm-hmm. producing like work that was it was so much important in coding the world and producing a way of seeing that was not the way of seeing of the, of the ruling class at that time so yeah i definitely think um in any kind of movement that some hegemony needs to also like take seriously the the sphere of culture on this topic of protracted people's war i've been doing a mostly lackluster history of the russian revolution the last few weeks and one thing that comes up when we're discussing this topic is the theory of insurrection i know a lot of mls point to the russian revolution as evidence that insurrectionary theory is really the only valid option when discussing revolution at the imperialist centers I'm just curious about your thoughts on this, as I think you've stated before, that you can even look at the Russian Revolution itself as a protracted people's war that started in 1905, as opposed to this this one glorious moment of insurrection in 1917. Well, I mean, to be honest, that idea is not mine, right? I took that from um, the new Communist Party of Italy, or the NPCI, and I'm not... I, I took it as something to, to think about. I'm not necessarily committed to it. I think mm-hmm. it's worth thinking about, right? Um, I mean, I wouldn't say from 1905 all the way to 1917 what you have is what looks like uh, a theorized and concrete protracted people's war. Sure. You do have this protracted process that looks in some ways it could be an untheorized kind of people's mm-hmm. war, right? Or at least tells us there's something more than the theory of insurrection. Now, I wrote actually a whole uh, a- academic paper on this for the journal of socialist studies a couple of years ago that's about like the way insurrectionism is treated as, as the normative strategy and so I, I talked a bit about this um i think one thing is clear with the, the russian situation if even if it was a situation of clear-cut insurrection there was a lot of very particular things in russia that you don't that aren't universal right, right. that allowed that insurrection to happen i mean the, the ability to split the army uh, is is something that could happen because there was like all these draftees that didn't want to be in the war. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> or, right. It's like that's that's a big deal. I mean, it's very different from a professional military that exists now in capitalist countries, and um, and and also a whole bunch of other it's kind of this the semi feudal situation and things like that, that that allowed for this. But also there was there was that process from 1905 onwards, and and one of the things that I, I think is interesting is that um, Karl Liebknecht. In his book uh, *Militarism*, mm-hmm. uh, he he's trying to he's trying to ask the question: Is what does capitalist militarism look like? And, and one of his arguments is that right now capitalism hasn't produced the time he's writing. Right, and the time he's writing is I think it's, that book was 
1911. I'm not sure right. about that, but it was 1911 or 19, 1908 to 1911. He wrote it in that kind of period. And he, he said, he's trying to say right now, which is his time, not ours, um, capitalism hasn't found its militarism yet. And he points out that like the way that capitalism is still arranged against military is more closer to feudal a feudal way of and he talks about all the different ways through drafts through having like an armed population through professional service all these kinds of, with only like a group of officers but then the rest still come from this draft mandatory military service all the all these kinds of things that are that look resemble more uh, a feudal way of doing things and so he says that this of course is what causes problems um for capitalism but he said capitalism will also overcome these problems Mm -hmm. and because it once it figures out how to do a proper capitalist military and then he predicts it'll be a military that's not draft that people really want to be it because there will be like a spread of military ideology through every level of education Mm -hmm. which is what we have oh yeah absolutely and so he, he predicts what it's going to look like and his argument is that well the the, the, the proletariat needs to find a, a new military strategy to combat this. And and then he also says, well, in 1905, it seems like Russia was starting to figure out this new military strategy. And so for him, this is before 1917 when he mm-hmm. writes this, he's starting to see a process of kind of a different kind of military strategy that emerges in the Russian Revolution. So again, that is why I, I think it's important to think of, well, maybe there's something that can teach us about PPW in the Russian Revolution and not just focus on this dogma of insurrection because people like Liebknecht were already seeing that before 1917. And, uh, and of course, just the, the larger thing, it's even if it is primarily a theory of insurrection that allows for you know the Russian Revolution to succeed, we know that this theory everywhere else it was tried. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah, so, I think so that's, that's obviously conveniently, yeah. Right. A lot of times, like that's that's something that they don't want to mention is how this has failed so many other times. So yeah, I think that's an important point too. Um, so just have a couple more questions for you, and I want to talk about your upcoming book, uh, Methods Devour Themselves. So as someone who's really both into sci-fi and philosophy, this just sounds like such an interesting concept to me. You're co-authoring the book with Benjamin Skrudenku. Can you cover the concept of the book and how you and Benjamin came together on this project? Yeah, okay. Uh, and first of all, just to correct it, because I know in case Benjamin is listening, and I have long mispronounced I knew it. I knew well. I was going to do it. But, and to be fair, all the audio recordings mispronounced it, so I was following it, and it sounded exactly what you did. But I decided to ask last night. I was like, I've just been following the audio, audio recordings. <laughs> That's exactly so how I do did. I say your name? And she sent me a Thai, from a Thai pronunciation, <laughs> and it's... Uh, it's Sivun Gao. Oh, God. That's I how it's pronounced. Off. Sivun, yeah. which I would never guess with my <laughs> shitty Anglo education. But, exactly. Uh, you know, so, Benjamin Sivun Gao. Um, and, yeah, so how did how did this come about and, and what's it about? Well, um, it came about for, you know, a long time. I've been a fan of uh, Benjamin's work. Uh uh, specifically, like she has a lot of short. She, she's a master, I think, of the short story form mm-hmm. in science fiction and fantasy. And um, I, you know, I really loved her work. <laughs> and I mean, she, be, she was kind of a, a controversial figure for reasons that I'm not going to get into because I don't want that to be uh, to, to distract this. There's a lot sure. that's been written about it, and a lot of really shitty things that have been written about her. But yes. she's definitely been someone that has really been pretty, you know, not. You know, not liberal and not wishy-washy in the way she comes about, like kind of her politics and the way of doing things. And she just writes pretty damn good stuff. Mm-hmm. So, um, when I first got on Twitter after continuity rupture, I was like, because uh, Zero said, "Hey, you should get on Twitter, Twitter, 
to promote <laughs> continuity and rupture. So, you know, I get on Twitter, and the first thing I do is, like, who should I follow? And I, you know, I clicked a lot of sci-fi people I liked, including her, because I was like, you know, I like following sci-fi people. So, like, sure. I clicked her. And then after a while, it was kind of like some of her tweets. I interacted with her. We became friends because of an exchange of things. We had some we, some direct messaging back and forth. And I think around the time Austerity Apparatus was about to come out, um, which was just, you know, I think like six months after I was on Twitter, um, I, I, like, I sent her this DM saying, hey, this is kind of weird, but do you want to blurb Austerity Apparatus? It's <laughs> nonfiction, but I, I always thought it'd be cool to have like a fiction author blurb, like yeah. a nonfiction book, uh, you know. Um, I'd like to do it the other way. I'd love to blurb some fiction, but, you know, I <laughs> doubt that's going to happen. <laughs> right, right. Fiction people. <laughs> so, so she surprised me by saying, sure, sure, I'll blurb it. And she read it. She really liked it. She wrote like a good blurb for it. And from then on, we kind of had this friendship. And then we started kind of talking about like joint projects because I liked her work and and then we came up with this book, uh, Methods Devour Themselves, which is, uh, I, as I said, it's it's kind of like, you know, it's a, it's a conversation, as it says, as a subtitle. It's a back and forth between fiction and nonfiction. And, and really what it is, that the whole pattern, the whole theory was that um, she would write a short story and then I would write a response to it. But the response wouldn't be a review. It wouldn't be any, it, it would just use um, kind of, elements of the short story to analogously talk about uh, some philosophical concept mm-hmm. that the short story provoked. So I would read it and be like, what does this make me want to talk about according to my interests in philosophy? Right? And yeah. then I would write about that. So it wouldn't be a review. It would be like writing this whole essay that was provoked by the short story. But then she would do the same thing with uh, the next you know, short story that I Sorry, but the, with her next short story, she would look at the essay I just produced, and she'd be like, "What what story does this kind of make me want to think about?" Right? right. And then she'd write a story, and then I would do it, and it would, so it would link like that. That's the way that it went, and it was really interesting. I mean, when we thought about it um, to do that, it kind of at the beginning we were like, "Well, maybe this is like good in theory and bad in practice." Like, <laughs> seemed like a really cool experimental thing to do, but they could really just not work, right? Sure. You you could get the first one. The first one would be easy, right? Because you could I, I could pick any short story of hers I wanted. So I, I started with something actually that was previously published because it was an easy way to begin because I had she wouldn't have to it, it wouldn't matter if she had to start with a new piece or, or, or an old piece at the beginning. All mm-hmm. the other ones are new because they're responses, but um, the first one could be anywhere. It's the beginning one. So I chose one I like because I thought it was one that I, you know, could write something about and I was like, those two work, right? Like it's <laughs> you choose something, you know, you can and then, and then after that it's all it could just go to shit yeah but it didn't actually it, it actually went really well um and uh, it, w- it was an interesting process as a writer for me because i was like just forced to i couldn't just write anything right it's like what does this make me think about and and a lot of times because it actually you actually can see um a certain level that it is a conversation or a dialogue because all of my nonfiction responses they kind of stay within the same register they all they're all somewhat related but the mediating stories that she throws in makes like alters the way that they they are related to each other so you know the first so the first um my first intervention is about kind of um, the limits that capitalism opposes imposes on the imagination, right? Um, right. And then the second one was so it's kind of like the, the second one is about thinking about kind of around this kind of notion of limits. It's about thinking about history and the way that we should understand history. And I talk about the differences of seeing of of, of seeing kind of um, history that's forward looking 
um, and history that's backwards looking and, and the way the communists should see it. And then the, the third one is about historical necessity in general. So they all are interrelated in this interesting way. Yeah, like I said, it sounds like such an uh, interesting concept. And just as far as like writing a book like that goes, you know, continuity and rupture was so rigorous. Um, Austerity apparatus was more of a, a philosophical piece. And this sounds like it's something completely different altogether. So is do you enjoy writing something like that more? Or was like the rigorous work of, of continuity and rupture something you prefer? I like all styles of writing, and I, mm-hmm. I try to stick to them. Like I have... I'm working on two manuscripts right now that would have the same level of rigor as for years that I've been working on them as continuity and rupture, right? Um, right. I, I, it, that kind of writing just takes longer. Sure. Uh, and it's, I still think it's important. Like, it's, I mean, it's funny how you said austerity and apparatus was more philosophical. I mean, the reality is I see something like continuity and rupture to be kind of the height of what I should be doing as a philosopher because that's the kind of philosophy I've trained in. Like, analytic mm-hmm. philosophy, build up the arguments, repeat things over and over until you fat people try to make things, like, <laughs> airtight as possible as opposed to just, like, speculating, where austerity apparatus was that loose kind of thesis-driven, like, speculating mm-hmm. around a concept. Um, and... The communist necessity was a polemic, right? Straight up polemic, so different style. And I, I think in you know in in methods devour themselves. Like the, I write in kind of an essay format that's a mixture between like rigor and and, and fun. Um, but it definitely would be more kind of laying out the arguments than uh, than say I did in austerity apparatus or the communist necessity. But yeah, I like I like kind of writing in a lot of different styles uh, i think it's useful for different reasons to approach things at different angles and different different genres different non-fiction genres i could say is the way that it's i'm, I'm doing it um but yeah I, I, the value is yeah they're, they're, i find them all equally fun to write and i just find some take more time and the, sure. the rigorous ones take more time um you, do, you mentioned that you're you're working on a couple manuscripts right now any way we could we could hear like what those are going to be about potentially where you're at on those? Yeah, um, I mentioned what they're about a number of times mm-hmm. in the past all over the place, so it's not. I don't think it's any secret if people could find it. But right. one of them is a book on kind of what it means to do philosophy in the shadow of the eleventh thesis. So mm-hmm. yet another one of those. What is Marxist philosophy books? <laughs> but I, I think it's one that for me was important to write because I think there was a lot of those books got things wrong in my opinion, and. Um, and especially in understanding what philosophy was. And I was writing it at the same time I was writing Continuity and Rupture, so a lot of the ways I talk about philosophy um, that could be misunderstood and that have been misunderstood are because I was writing those arguments out in this other manuscript <laughs> that <laughs> was much slower, and so it was just kind of bleeding into it, right? It was right. bleeding into it. So that one is that one is pretty much finished. It just needs like some serious linear editing. Um, it's just more when I, you know, I was going to publish it next, but then this, this thing I was doing with Benjamin, um, was something zero was more interested in. So it was like, okay, that's a bit different and they're interested in doing it. So I'll just push that philosophy book of mine, which still needs a proper title. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, it's all done, but I got coming up with titles. Is so Oh, it's, it's so, so important. Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> I just call it unnamed philosophy. There you go. Yeah, is what it's called right it, now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I pushed that one back for this, but I, I can get on. I need to get on it again and um, just do a proper edit and, and submit it. 
And then the other manuscript I'm working on that, again, is almost finished, just needs proper editing. And I, cause I, write, I jump around and write a lot of these things at the same time and move back and forth. Is again a rigorous one, but it's on it's on economism actually. It's on it's nice. on, a, on on the problem of economism and thinking about it historically and also what it means for class struggle. And so that's uh, that's another one that I have to get some proper editing done. I mean, really, right now one of the problems is at the beginning of the strike. I I spilled water on my keyboard, <laughs> and so uh, I fried my computer where these 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 files are. And even though I have them all backed up, I need I need a new a new computer to work on them. I mean, right. right now I'm talking to you through my tablet. I can't really work on those files there. So I because I can't get them onto here because they're on file format that doesn't recognize and uh so i kind of need to uh you know get a new computer which means the strike has to end so i can afford a new computer (laughs) (laughs) so those those manuscripts are almost finished but now they're kind of inaccessible at the moment right that's where i am on them well maybe we can get some people together to crowdfund like getting jmp a laptop because i think a lot of us would love to see those works Oh no! It's I, once the strike ends. I, there's one of the things that we've bargained for in the past is we have a a fund, an equipment fund that right. would pay probably about you know fifty percent of a of new computer because I haven't used it for a long time, so it just builds money up. So I'm hoping that I can get off and just use that and that. I'm not. It's not like I'm really giving a lot of time to working on things right now at the strike. You kind of get sure. into this mindset of walking the line, all the stuff around the union and things like that. Awesome. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be on the podcast. Thank you for putting up with the technical issues as well. Is there anything else you want to promote or discuss before we let you go? Nothing that I can think of off the top of my head. I guess just everyone who likes my stuff, um, maybe go get a copy of Methods Devour themselves when it comes out. And if you're interested, check out the work of Benjamin Sivlin Gao. Um, a lot of her short stories, the magazines have, you know, online presences that you can get a hold of them and her most recent novella winter glass was really good as well absolutely and um methods devour themselves that's coming out through zero books correct yep it is awesome cool i will link to all of your previous work and that one as well so jmp thanks again so much for taking the time thank you all right so that was my interview with jay mufuad paul as i said plenty of really good insights from jmp as per usual I'm hoping the technical difficulties didn't like kill the entire thing for you. Also, a sound engineer, I am not, so I apologize for my booming voice and uh, breathing like a six-year-old during parts of this interview. It's something I tried to edit out as best as I could, but I think, you know, JMP got a lot of great ideas across, and that was the point of during the interview. This is something I'm going to be working on, kind of the technical aspect as, as we move forward here. So yeah, like I said at the top of the show, we have a piece from Lauren about abortion and the failures of white liberalism. So here is Lauren. So this week, I wanted to start off by talking abortion. Um, Recently, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds signed into law the strictest abortion ban in the country. It is another one of those so-called heartbeat bills. It prohibits most abortions once a fetal heartbeat can be detected, which is usually around six weeks into the pregnancy. This is early enough that many women don't even realize that they're pregnant yet which is exactly the point. Um, If you can't beat them, trick them might as well be the motto for these anti-choice cunts. Um, The good news, the silver lining of this shit cloud, is that this will most likely be blocked by a federal judge. That has been the case with similar laws in Mississippi, North Dakota, and Arkansas. Um, Additionally, Planned Parenthood and the ACLU of Iowa have announced plans to sue the state. Um, But blocking this ban 
doesn't completely fix the problem. As soon as one law is ruled unconstitutional, there's another to take its place. There are always roadblocks to getting a safe abortion. Um, For instance, some states require that women undergo a mandatory counseling session beforehand and then a waiting period between that and the procedure. This waiting period can be anywhere from 24 hours to three days. Most states deny healthcare coverage for abortions and they don't come cheap, I have checked. Many will limit public funding for abortion clinics or impose absurd restrictions on them, regulations specifying things like the size of the procedure rooms or the width of the corridors. These are what's known as trap laws, targeted regulation of abortion providers, and they are responsible for shutting down a massive number of clinics. Um, Some states are down to just one. These restrictions, too numerous to name, hit working class women the hardest getting multiple days off of work, arranging transportation, and then paying for the procedure itself. These are obstacles many women can't overcome. Now, at various points in my angry adult life, I have expressed my fears surrounding this issue, that women will lose the fundamental right to control our own bodies. And inevitably, there is always some guy there who is quick to reassure me that Roe v. Wade will never be overturned, I have nothing to worry about, everything is fine. And I know this is just anecdotal evidence, but to me that is white liberalism in a nutshell. It's this smug confidence that things will never get that bad while ignoring or contributing to a culture that already is that bad. These are the people who use Michelle Obama's remark about when they go low, we go high as justification for their continuing inaction. They can tell themselves they aren't ignoring the ways in which this country is broken. They aren't basking in their privilege. They're just taking the high road. And that's my problem with things like the Women's March, Um, besides the fact that it seemed to attract a huge number of swerfs and turfs, which if your feminism is an excuse for bigotry, you can go fuck yourself. Um, But besides that, I think the organizers had really good intentions for racial, economic, and gender equality, but no real plan on how to achieve those things. It's not that these kind of demonstrations are without value. I think it's good to come together to show that there is a massive crowd united in a common goal. But if it doesn't go further than that, that's all it is. It's a show. It's pageantry. And how much can really be accomplished by a relatively tame march, one that carefully stays within the parameters dictated by the police, really? I mean, honestly. Um, I think if we if we think we will get anywhere by asking, we are mistaken. True change can only be achieved through radical action. As a nation, we need to adjust our idea of what constitutes violence. I know this is something that's been discussed on the show before, so I'll try and be brief. Um, but we are conditioned to be blind to the state-sanctioned actions of violence that occur every day. The government's refusal to do anything about the poisonous water supply in Flint, that's violence. The constant, unending, unpunished brutality of our racist police force, that's pretty fucking blatant violence. Privatizing our prisons is violence. Tearing families apart through deportation is violence. Co-opting control of women's bodies and forcing them to carry unwanted pregnancies to term is violence. The shortened life expectancy, decreased quality of life, and soul death of a life lived in poverty is violence capitalism is violence. At a certain point, we're going to have to come to terms with the fact that our passive outrage has gotten us nowhere. The time has come to stop asking. Our lives depend on it.
All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for the show this week. Hopefully you enjoyed the interview. Hopefully you enjoyed Lauren's piece. If you have any questions for us, you can find us on Twitter at ManifestPod. Again, the Facebook page and Instagram page are up as well. If you want to support the show, you can do so at Patreon.com slash ManifestPod. So until next week, Red Salute.